All right, we're back with part two with our discussion and interview with Dr. David Van Stralen on evidence-based medicine and tactical combat casualty care guidelines, the good, the bad, the irrelevant. Our discussions continue into how evidence-based medicine derives its evidence and what characteristics that that evidence or epistemology must have to make it strong or weak. Then we dive into the friction point that will naturally occur of how strong evidence or epistemology and evidence-based medicine often makes the study fairly irrelevant to anyone who works operationally due to how that RCT has to be conducted. What should become really clear is that the guidelines themselves of tactical combat casualty care are not really the problem whatsoever. The treatment modalities are actual principles of all medicine. It just changes the practices due to the environment in which it's going to be employed. Practices change in TC3 due to the combat environment. But nowhere in medicine are you going to find anyone who says, you know what, in regular medicine, outside the tactical environment, you can go ahead and ignore that arterial bleed. No, absolutely not. How you manage that or treat that is potentially going to change. And that's what the guidelines address. And I think that's the power of the guidelines. The problem comes when they are recommending products without any operational testing prior to going into that. And those are some of the problems that that we've talked about before from the wound stat to the antibiotics not being able to constitute in high temperatures. And really the list goes on and on for anybody that's been following it through the years. There's There's been some epic problems that, that have occurred. That is really what we're hitting on is the fact that they are recommending by name products that are in their guidelines, yet they have never been tested outside of that lab. And that's where the huge disconnect really comes into. And even if you look at it, there's certain companies out there that have actually based their entire product lines on following TC3, which is kind of interesting due to the fact that that's probably the weakest part of the guidelines is they don't evaluate that stuff. And when we look at certain breakages of equipment, other issues that we can kind of, we will go into in this podcast, That's where I believe that main friction point occurs when we apply evidence-based medicine to the studies of actual products and then placing them to the guidelines. We're going to continue on with part two. We'll also have a about a 25-minute after podcast of these two that kind of wraps things up a little bit for you. Thanks. Obviously, when when I started running into these issues with the junctional tourniquets that, that are advised right now that are in these guidelines and having very, very close to 100% breakage of the three that are in there. One shouldn't even be in there, but the, the two that may seem like they should be in there. It, it was pretty astounding because it was really by accident. Is We were we were at a place and, and doing a bunch of rescue training, and somebody basically threw one of these devices on, and it was one of the ones that screw into kind of the inguinal crease area. Locked it on, and as soon as we lifted that casualty up to put them out a window to do a hasty evac literally that thing catastrophically broke the screws that are they're plastic basically flew out and went four stories down and we all just kind of sat there and looked at each other like holy crap that really makes sense because all those that that are in those guidelines right now articulate in an area where i have got to move a patient like i i have got to bend you in that area, I've got to bring your knees up kind of towards your chest to get you on the windowsill to put you out or over the edge. Uh, I've got to bend you when I'm doing a structural collapse or confined space rescue. You know, we always joke that whether it's you, me, or both of us are going to be pregnant by the time that I get you out. We're that close 
together while we're trying to move that casualty out of those those situations, let alone somebody that, that needs a junctional that is potentially in a trapped with a dashboard down on their lap and in a vehicle accident. You can't put it on. So it, it was kind of alarming that they never looked at this type of issue and, and identified that. So I kind of come up with an example just to kind of put it into context, and it really seemed pretty absurd to me, the example I gave, but I pretty much followed every study that I had in front of me, which was literally hundreds, and basically gave the assumption, and I, and I briefed to one of the guys that's a buddy of mine that's on that committee, and I'm like, just prove this wrong, man, as far as the data and the research that goes into what you derive into your meta-analysis. I'm like, I am in charge of a police department, let's say, or a federal agency, whatever. And I have the say on what firearm you carry. So I come to you, David, and I'm like, hey, listen, good news. Just found a new firearm for you to carry, man. We're going to ditch your old one. And I've got the new one. We just put it through a whole bunch of strenuous testing. And what that testing actually consisted of is we took that handgun and we chambered a magazine into it and went ahead and racked a single round into it. And from 15 feet out, we fired a target and it hit it. It was actually pretty accurate. And then we took the magazine out and we're good. So then we took a bunch of people and we all had them go ahead and seat their magazine, rack around in there, and everyone fired a single shot at that target. And some were better shots than others and some had issues pulling the trigger, breathing, whatever. But really it fell into really a nice normal distribution curve to show you that it's pretty darn accurate. And that's the gun we're going to give to you. And at that point you should be like, hey, man, that's, that's neat. First of all, it's neat, but um, did you ever fire, you know, maybe more, more than one round through it? Um, because very rarely, as an officer, would I ever just fire a single round at somebody. Man, a lot of times we'll fire multiple rounds at a threat, uh, a lot more than than one round. I would respond, dude, no, man. We what I told you is, we, we seated it, we fired it, and we had we had accuracy on there. No, we didn't. We didn't do that, man. But they are accurate. Look at look at the data. Look at this. Look at this curve, man. Like the probabilities. I mean, we, we we're great, man. We're we're in that p equaling zero point zero five. Right? We're solid, man. You're good to go. You're like, but that's not operational, man. I will fire more rounds. You know, what's the chance of a double feed or stovepipe or any of this? I don't know. That's that's not my concern. Well, did you at least evaluate it? Like, how was it? Did you put it in dirt? get it up, shake it off, fire. No, man, they're all at an indoor range. You know, we, we aren't going to do that. As absurd as that sounds, that's literally all the research that goes into the crap that gets put into the EBM guidelines. I, I can't find it. I was all excited when I saw a hemostatic research that actually did movement. Uh, now, granted, that movement was in a lab, uh, but they did 40 movements uh, with a hemostatic to, to test for rebleeding between a couple different agents. And in it, they did, you know, 10 movements in extension, you know, 10 movements in flexion, abduction, adduction, to be able to show that. And so I was pretty excited. I'm like, wow, that is nowhere near an operational testing, but it's the closest thing I've seen in over a decade of research. Then come to find out the original testing, it was actually done by the Brits, so it wasn't even wasn't even us. But but that's the reality of it. And, you know, the member that I was talking to of this just kind of laughed and he's like, yeah, it's... That's 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 kind of that's pretty much it, man. That's kind of alarming, you know. Well, well that's that's a good point though, because um, I worked in the ICU, and I can tell you the first half hour to forty-five minutes, maybe even an hour, of resuscitation, the majority of that can be done in the street. It sounds odd, but if I'm looking at uh, a cardiac echo or an X-ray, standard for a, an emergency X-ray in the ICU is one hour. 
So it can take me an hour for that. Putting the monitoring lines in place when they're not there, 45 is to an hour, and depending on how much support I have. You can be quicker, don't get me wrong, but for the most part, it can be done in the streets. Um, and I, I would pay attention to that because I'd ask myself what can or can't go out there. One of the chiefs wanted to do central lines in the field, so I showed him how to do one. And when he saw that what can be done smoothly in the ICU on the street, when you introduce the needle into the vessel, then you have to pass a wire through it. It's a very long wire. And if that wire touches anything, you've got to pull it out, pull the, everything out, put pressure on for five minutes for the bleeding to stop, and then start over. And then you realize that in an environment, it doesn't work. So he, he had never thought in terms of the environment as a fire chief. He hadn't. Because it works in one area, it doesn't mean it works in the other and vice versa. That's one of the problems with evidence-based medicine is that because the environment is so controlled, and even physicians who bring you tips to do in the field, they can become experts at it by doing a lot of these cases, a lot of these procedures. They can very smoothly, and maybe they can do it in the field, or maybe they cannot because they don't realize all the uh, distractions in the field and the type of environment you have. So if you're not taking into account the actual field application, um, you got to be very cautious with, with taking new stuff out, out there. And, and then there's the maintenance of it. We live in a desert area, so what about the stuff, uh, how it's going to be sitting in an ambulance or a fire truck in the heat? I was at a national conference uh, 20 some years ago, and they're talking about using blood warmers for IVs. And these docs next to me were deriding that, just making horrible comments about it. And finally, somebody asked the question, which anybody who works in the mountains would understand. And the answer was, we use this in winter when the IV line can freeze going from the bag to the patient. Well, if you don't know the environment, of course you might be making criticisms of this. So, so we, we don't look from the hospital side. We don't take into account the uncontrolled environment of humidity, vibration, the noise uh, in, a, in a helicopter or a fixed wing craft, the dust, the lack of support in people, the electric power that you might need for certain devices. That's not taken into account for it. And that's not even putting in what we talked about on evidence-based medicine of the interaction of the patient with the environment. Right. And I, and I think before I, I sound too negative on that study, that the studies that I was just talking about is, I was talking to another buddy of mine who's, uh, who I really respect. It's an orthopedic doc uh, in Georgia. And he brought up a good point, And that's that those studies are, are you have to start somewhere really in, in the end if a tourniquet makes a claim or a junctional tourniquet or a hemostatic or anything like that makes a claim that's really the first step you've got to evaluate it and it's probably going to be in a lab because you've got to say does this thing even work and and that that should be that first step the problem really that i have is then it's put into this guideline and People actually believe that, wow, these people have probably really evaluated this. Like they put it through the legitimacy and variables of combat, and that's inaccurate. That's not correct at all. So I, I think that, yeah, it's very valuable. And, and how could they really, when you think about it, with the cost of studies and things like that, to be able to test it in every environment, you, you, there's no way you can do that. I mean, how federal law enforcement roles compared to how local EMS system compared to how you know, units within special operations from SEALs to Rangers to SF teams, they all are in different environments uh, from you name it. That, that's why they're specialized teams. So to be able to test them in all those environments is is not realistic. But what is realistic is being honest about your research and saying, hey, listen, 
we have not evaluated it in an operational context because there are so many operational contexts. What we have evaluated it in is in a laboratory under fluorescent lights in a very controlled environment. This is what we have found to work here. Now it is up to you to evaluate it to see if it works in your environment. And that's not what's being done. What's being done is, here we go, we've tested it in the lab, go for it, have at it, and take it with you to the ends of the world. It'll work, and it doesn't. That's the, that's the false sense of security that, that a lot of us wrote on for a long time, is believing that that research actually templated potential operational success for that specific brand name item in an operational environment. And, and that's not true at all whatsoever. There's no truth in it at all. So, you know, I think that at least be honest about what's going on. And when you present that, say, hey, we cannot test it for, for what the Rangers are going to put it through compared to what the U.S. Marshals may put it through compared to what this fire department is going to do compared to the Ranger Regiment. But we can tell you that at least it, it, the claims are true for what it says in a controlled environment. Now, have at it and you need to do your own testing, you know, and I think that would at least gain respect. Uh, out there when you actually examine that research, how it's done now. Well, that's a good point, Sean, because you, you have to start somewhere. In other words, you have an envelope. And the old thing of pushing the envelope um, is what are the operational characteristics? So you're given something from evidence-based medicine and saying these are the operational characteristics of this drug, therapy, treatment, whatever you want to call it, equipment, and in, in a controlled environment. Now, your job in the field is to push that envelope to find out what is the operational characteristics given the lab data. Because every time you, you so in other words, you're, you're a test pilot every time you're, you're out in the field. You're testing these things out, finding what are they in my complex environment. And, but you do have to start somewhere. And that's where evidence-based medicine helps us. It does replace better knowledge and science with stuff that's not as reliable. It's a constant push to know more, and then let's take it in the field and test drive it. Yeah, and, and I, I'll be honest. I, you know, I talked to uh, quite a few people that work at actual centers for evidence-based medicine, including the one uh, in the UK, in Oxford, and I was really impressed with the gains and the environments that they utilize evidence-based medicine in. And actually, to be honest with you, not one of the people I ever talked to actually agreed with the use of evidence-based medicine being the sole decision maker for guidelines in a pre-hospital environment because most of their success with evidence-based medicine was in the areas of things like oncology, type 2 diabetes, certain childhood obesity issues, chronic lower back pain. And over and over, they stated that those things were, were very relevant and very useful in an area where there was time, there was already a diagnosis, there were patterns that had developed, and that's where they could really utilize evidence-based medicine is when they had that patient, they had all the diagnostics done, they had all these these lab values and this and this, and, you know, it was a stage four, you know, carcinoma, melanoma, things like that, and they were able to, to template that out over the research that they were able to gather and make informed decisions. Yet, in the pre-hospital environment, we don't have any of those luxuries, including time with patient. Even in a prolonged field care situation, you're extremely prohibited. But we don't make diagnosis out there because we don't have the means, number one being time, but 
but the values and those capabilities. But I, I was very impressed with those areas where evidence-based medicine is very valuable. It's just not in that environment. Well, think of it this, this way, that your job when you first come on to something like this is to start reducing the variability, grabbing control of whatever you can control, bring it down to where you are linear, to where evidence-based medicine can work. It's kind of like bringing an out-of-control plane down to where you can make a smooth landing. Um, get control of where you can. And I'd say that if I got to an emergency, and I've seen some of these where we've independently working with some groups of wildland firefighters, came on a motor vehicle collision. And I would say that any one of us could have brought this, this scene under control. Um, we would have approached it from different points of view and different reasonings. Um, but we would take what we knew we could bring control to it, we would start there and gradually bring a piece of it under control. And that's what you're doing during these crises. There's no really black swan. What it is, is is that whatever happens to you, you have some recognition of the familiar. And you're going to control that and understand that and interact with that. And as that settles down, other pieces start to fall in place. So what you're doing is you're taking what could become, what could become cascading failure with entrainment of energy and, and destruction and turn it into a cascading, smooth uh, success and control. Whenever we get into this, you know, the one pitfall that you will always see based on evidence-based medicine, as we stated before, was the capability of shaping your inclusion-exclusion criteria, having a bias on there to be able to meet something. And in such a research-depleted area as tactical medicine, in many cases, it, with all those variables, it, it does become pretty dif- difficult. Uh, you had that article that you sent to me a little while ago from the Harvard business school that, that has a couple of great quotes on it. And one of them is uh, where judgments are made with messy, incomplete data, statistical and methodological wizardry can blind rather than illuminate. And I think we've seen that probably in quite a bit of the, the stuff that we've been talking about. And a lot of the studies that, that were referenced as we begin to, you know, to bring up quantitative and qualitative events, you know, another quote out of there is, is McNamara's Vietnam War era experience painfully demonstrates leaders tend to get into trouble, not by fouling up the numbers, but by failing to give the correct weight to all of the quantitative and qualitative factors that should figure into their decisions. The greatest risks they run are by products of their trained tendency to define problems in terms of what they know and then fall back on the past behavior when faced with a new challenge. Then he goes on to say, we see what we want to believe, which is, you know, what we talked about before with our confirmation biases that we have. And, and we tend to put that square through the circle, even though we know eh, we're going to have to hammer a while to get it in there, but maybe we can make it fit. And I think that's what we've seen. And we, we see that uh, actually in military data, you know, it's things like TC3 trying to be pushed into the civilian area. And that data, that dog doesn't hunt at all. You know, extremity hemorrhage, number one, you bet your ass it is in the military data. And all that end, those tens of thousands of, of service men and women that have been injured, that they're pulling that data, showing that extremity hemorrhage, you know, specifically lower extremity hemorrhage is the number one injury people are getting in war. And then trying to put that into the civilian side sounds reasonable until you look at the data and like, wow, you know what, all of those tens of thousands of people injured that we're looking at the injury data on, all were wearing level four body armor, front and rear plates, many times side plates, bicep protectors, Kevlar helmets. And to be honest with you, the only part of their body is not exposed or not uh, protected with PPE is their lower extremities. You know, and then you start going, wow, how many kids do we send to school? How many kids go to school? How many people go to the movie theaters like Aurora 
we're in level four body armor that we can translate that data directly into there. And then we start seeing that, man, this, uh, this, uh, this may be problematic, uh, trying to force that square into the circle a little bit. Well, uh, I kind of want to build on some of what you're saying about the role of, of this evidence-based medicine. If you have facts, which evidence-based medicine is, is working to develop, um, how do you identify what a fact is? Take these facts. They will guarantee your hypothesis. That's what your research is about. You have a hypothesis. You collect facts. You, you guarantee them. That's actually what deductive reasoning is. But in the field where we are, we don't even have facts. We have evidence. And that evidence can be weak or it can be strong. And if you think about what you're doing is someone's approaching you. They're going to help you or hurt you. You watch their face. You watch their demeanor. You watch how fast they're approaching. And as the evidence comes up, it starts going through your mind whether they're there to help or hurt. You're also in your mind is going the evidence of those around you who might help you or will they hide behind you. So these things are going back and the evidence is changing. And as the evidence keeps changing, you keep changing your conclusion of what you're going to do. That's called inductive reasoning. The evidence supports the conclusion and your job is to, is to strengthen the evidence and throw away the weak evidence, constantly changing your conclusion, as opposed to deductive reasoning where your job is to collect the facts because if you can collect the facts, then you got a guaranteed hypothesis. So those who like evidence-based medicine the most, if you watch them, they're all about collecting data, all about collecting facts, because that's going to make them feel better and reassure them. Those of us who work in a different environment of that inductive reasoning, 80% of the time you're successful and 20% of the time you fail is not a fact to me. That's evidence. That, that, that's a that's a hysterical point too, and I think one thing that's good that you said is although we keep kind of talking about some of the irrelevance of evidence-based medicine, we can't confuse that with the fact that we are always getting evidence, and it's it's how we process that and what we're able to pick up on, and and with that when when we're looking at evidence and we're looking at precursors to that things that lead up to it, that can potentially easily be seen in these studies in a lab where because of all the other factors of the environment from enemy uh, fire, from threats to you know low light, no light, wear night vision to this, to that, whatever, we potentially will not be able to perceive those things that are, are perceived then. And I think a great example is there was, there was a, a really super smart doc who's done an enormous amount of tourniquet research out there, obviously, there's been issues with one of the main two tourniquets out there having having breakage with a with a windlass, and a lot of these things get blamed on oh, it's a counterfeit, it's this or that, and and that's absolutely not true. That there's been plenty of, of cases where it's been pulled right out of the box, out of the wrapper, and and had those break, and, and I've seen that multiple times, even within the last two months. It's interesting because in one of his documents, he actually stated in, in a presentation that when he's using that plastic windlass, he believes it's positive because before it breaks, he can feel it bend in his hand. And that gives him kind of a warning. We all looked at each other and it literally almost started rolling because under the stress of actually being out there, not being as a PhD in a laboratory, doing thousands of tourniquet tests and feeling a slight flex of the plastic in my hand before it breaks, actually putting it on your buddy who is bleeding to death, how many people are able to perceive that that windlass flexed a little bit while his buddy just got shot, he's bleeding out, 
and shit's going awry, you are not going to be able to perceive crap as far as <laughs> windless flexing slightly before it broke. But, the, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that gap. It's that plutonic fold, that gap of, of knowledge between reality of operations and potentially somebody who just studies it in a lab. Both are very valuable. You know, I'm not trying to dissuade that, but the irrelevance is mind-blowing at times. Well, that's the point. Is the lab people, we need them. They're going to give us a well-constructed envelope. It's going to have a lot of characteristics that are known, and there'll be some that are unknown. Some will be static dy- uh, characteristics, and some will be dynamic, meaning that uh, until I start moving and using it, I won't know. And, and remember, dynamics do change. It's well-known in physics. Uh, if you play with silly putty, pull it slowly, it stretches. Pull it fast, it breaks. There's another thing that have uh, dynamic resistance, um, flow. Uh, when it goes slow, it's laminar, and the resistance is from the diameter or radius. And there can be a, a point of either density or speed, flow rate, where it changes between laminar and turbulent. In turbulent flow, the resistance is due to the speed. So what I'm saying is that you're given a static envelope. You're in a dynamic world. You start working that world, you start working that envelope, and each one of us is an experiment to decide how can we push that envelope knowing that there's some limits. Some of the limits only we know from the environment, and some of the limits are known by the researchers in the lab. Lastly, to, to kind, of, kind of wind this up a little bit is one thing that we touched on but really probably didn't give an example that, that I think is, rings true with a lot of the people that, that we work with and teach is – Going back to the curves, the normal curve, the one thing we always talk about and we talked about it this evening, but you're going to see it on every study that you see is that p-value, is the probability. That is what is derived from there, right? It just looks like the emergence of six sigma off of your standard deviations of your bell curve and things like that. Those outliers are thrown out and probability can be assessed off that where your normal uh, distribution deals with probability your power distribution or inverse uh, power laws deal with possibility. And, you know, as a funny example, when you look at that into templating that into let's make some operational decisions and try and force that Gaussian curve into our world is I can take a look at a, a SWAT team or an assault element or you name it. Like, hey, Dave, your last 10 missions, you you didn't use a tourniquet. What you did is you you guys were able to go in there and just wax people, but uh, you never used a tourniquet. But what you did is you had a couple guys that got dust in their eyes. And so what I'm suggesting is I'm going to pull the tourniquets off your gear on your next mission. And we're going to replace that with some little saline bottles so you can do eye flushes because probability tells you you aren't going to need those tourniquets and you probably will need this saline eye flush. And people will look at you like they want to kill you. Like, are you a flipping moron, man. But that's really probability is I can look at that data sets of your past missions and potentially template that where the power distribution curve looks at possibility going, we are hitting a place that <laughs> where dudes have guns and they shoot people. I am definitely not leaving the tourniquets behind. And I think that's, you know, at a basic sense, an interesting purpose when you're trying to look at the probability versus possibility. What happens when we throw the outlier out? And I think that kind of goes back to what you opened with is it's that that one event in 99, that one event in a thousand. We don't throw that away, right? We still consider that a possibility and don't want to get burned down by it. I agree with what you're saying and then keeping in mind who you're up against. 
risk risk managers risk assessment um, risk is an actuarial value it's going to be the damages basically times the probability it'll happen if you multiply those out that comes up with the risk if i spend more money than that to mitigate it i've wasted money so this tells you actually risk guides you at insurance buying insurance and being insured and it helps figure out how much money should I put into a building to protect it, keep it from falling? That's what risk is about. A probability helps you know that risk. What you're describing is I'm going out in the field and so I can sit there and calculate how much money I can spend, how much a soldier costs me to lose. Um, I can go into their death. I can go into medical care. I can actually calculate from a risk awareness, not that I would, that the probability of a soldier being shot, wounded, maimed, killed, disabled for life, how much should I spend to mitigate that? And that's kind of what you're describing. You're describing somebody using an actuarial approach to figure out the cost, minimal cost, to mitigate risk, and I'm willing to accept a certain amount of loss because to pay more money is it's, it's expensive. Interesting also that you brought that up because I could not find one thing on evidence-based medicine as far as the hallmarks or the definitions that did not have as one of the bullet points it being a cost-effective practice. See, and that's important because if you notice the people who use the actuary approach or tell you that this costs too much money tend to be the ones who are not at risk for hurt themselves. They're not out in the field. They're going to be back in the lab somewhere in office. So their sensation of possibility and what can happen with loss is, is different from yours. You can see clearly now the, the difference in epistemology. If they want to make it measurable, they want to know how much it's going to cost me if I don't do it, how much will it cost me if I do it, what's the cost uh, of the risk. This is what they're going to be calculating out. And maybe there's some judgment that's useful on that. Do I invade a country? What's the cost going to be? So it can frame an argument. But when it comes down to the, the granular level of, of you engaged with an event, that you throw out. Because it, that's one of the problems with Toyota Lean and these other Six Sigma they want. They want to get rid of variability. They want to get rid of the waste. They want to get rid of the fat. And then when they need it, this just-in-time stuff doesn't work. It's like, well, how much equipment is on a fire truck? Not enough and too much. Only firefighters or people in emergencies understand that concept. Everybody else thinks it's a joke. Or they call it all toys. So, so yeah, it's very real uh, how much you can bring out in the field. And I, I would tell you that not to depreciate equipment, but probably the most cost-effective thing we can do, and it's not so much education and training and teaching, it's, it's helping our people in the field learn how to think. And if I were to say there's any difference I can see between the guys and gals I worked with in the 70s who had... The, the combat um, experience from World War II through Korea and Vietnam. They had the major riots, you know, Watts riots. They had huge fires. They had crimes, the onion-filled uh, uh, problem with the cops, LAPD. They had a different way of thinking than when I encountered when I got into healthcare. And when I came into medicine, it was completely different. Um, and that's what led me to this study to figure out what was the get discrepancy, what was the gap, what was the cause of it. And I can tell you that it's to learn how to modulate your fear response, it's physiologic in the brain, 
to learn how to make decisions with imperfect, messy information, to learn how to think on the fly, to approach a plan, you know, a situation with no plan. Like one firefighter told me, I don't know what's happening, but I know what to do. Yeah. When I said that in the ICU, people looked aghast at me. And I, I never said it again. I said it only one time. Never again. Because they did not understand what I was talking about. So we are sometimes taken a, um, seduced by evidence-based medicine, equipment, and tools. And we don't go back to how to think. And, and, and one way that I, I think is important, um, a buddy of mine I went to high school with in some college, he worked in a farm in Idaho, and the government had made these fancy devices for siphoning water out of the canal into the uh, irrigation ditches. And the farmers learned that if you put your hand over one end, dip it in the water, and pull it up quickly, it does the same thing. So there's a lot you can replace by the ability to think and problem solve. And that's where I would go the difference, what uh, my fire captain told me, Bill Corr. He said, what we do in the fire department is we solve problems the public cannot or will not solve themselves. And I filed that under um, cute phrases, interesting stuff. And then as I started reading uh, Duncan Dieterle's work on problem solving versus decision making, I realized that's actually quite significant. Because Dieterle looked at problem solving and divided it between the intuitive problem because you have to solve it intuitively. You don't know the situation. You're not sure what intervention will work and you simply don't know what objective you can reach. Then he said there was the undefined problem where you don't know the situation but you have to act. That's really where we are in, in emergency services. There was the defined problem where you knew the situation but you weren't sure what would work or what your objective was. That, again, is something we want our, our rookies and our novices to learn before they even come in the field. That's what I would call competence. I want them to solve a problem well when I don't know the solution. The last one is most significant. If you know the situation and know the intervention and know the objective that can be reached, that's really evidence-based medicine. Duncan Dieterle called that the trivial problem. All of our work, all of our research, and all of our efforts are going towards what Dieterle calls the trivial problem. What the combat vets and the experienced firefighters, medics, cops that I knew from the 70s, they were at the other end. They were working the undefined problem. They were working the intuitive problem, and they were teaching us how to do that. That information is being lost. That's where I believe we should be spending our time studying and educating our people. Last two things. One is just a comment is back onto the the cost benefit uh, of things is going back to the whole kind of catalyst that, that caused me to really start looking into this was the what I consider just the buffoonery of not evaluating these junctional devices. And I was having such an ungodly rate of failure, catastrophic failure of them all when I'd utilize them in any kind of rescue, uh, whether that was just putting somebody over the end of a roof and lowering them on a rope system or out a window, or it was in a vehicle extrication, or it was in a, uh, a structural collapse confined space type of issue is there was one tourniquet that did not fail, did not fail at all with me. And, and I should probably put out that I have no financial disclosure to any products that, that we've been discussing out here. And that was the, that was an abdominal aortic uh, junctional tourniquet. And it's because 
it goes above where I bend people. It's in the abs. It's in the umbilicus area. That stayed out of the way. It didn't. I didn't have a problem when I do somebody in a vertical lower on a skid. I didn't have issues with it anyway. I could actually apply it to somebody that was sitting in a vehicle with a dashboard on their legs, and not have a problem with it. Yet that never got approved into these guidelines. And one of the comments that I heard was, you know, we just saved you know, the citizens, the, the government, a bunch of money because that junctional tourniquet actually costs more than, than the others. But I can tell you hands down, uh, you know, over six months of doing quite a bit of training, implementing that in most of them, that's the only one that's never failed yet. You know, it was a cost and it was some other, you know, whatever that they didn't include it, but, uh, it was kind of kooky. If you could finish this off for us and you're going to love the last, last topic, can you just kind of explain a stochiastic, uh, environment yeah when i was reading uh, george orr's book on uh, c3i combat decision making for the air force i was introduced to the word stochastic and chasing around uh, definitions in dictionaries and in the math books and, and a couple of points of it basically it's what happens when the probability changes this is not Bayes theorem where um, i change my probability as my belief changes so if i look outside and it's overcast i might think it could rain, so I decide whether to bring an umbrella or not. But that's based on where I may, how much time I spend outside and if I have loose papers with me or waterproof case. But if the clouds are lower and it's colder, maybe I change my mind about the chance of it raining. That's more like base theorem where your belief changes. In stochastic, if I tell you what's the average height of a group of people, and I ask John to do that, and then I ask someone else to do that, I might change a parameter or a measure, and I tell Sean, what's the average people in the crowd, but I want you to measure women, and I tell someone else I want you to measure men, I tell someone else I want you to measure anybody in the 50 to 70 year range. When I change a parameter like that, I change the statistic. So when you're in the field, how that will happen is that the environment will change the statistic for you. If there's fire present, not fire present. If there's a crowd present, not present. Um, if I'm in a, uh, an area with a lot of gang activity or drug activity, a crowd may be more dangerous than if I'm in a wealthy area. Although the wealthy area may be more intrusive because they don't want to be bothered. And so they may call their city councilman to tell the fire chief to call you to leave. So that, that's where your probability changes based on these, these measurements. It can also change over time because your parameters change. So there's no way to know exactly, even though you're following a probability, that probability changes in, in little jumps and starts. You end up in a world where it's not totally out of control, but it doesn't have the predictability of a probability and a statistic. Think about your world, and that's why in these short little measurements, you can predict what will happen in the next 5 minutes, 10 minutes, or 20 minutes. You can predict what will happen in a minute. That's stochastic because you know as soon as something changes, the probability of the next pace changes. That's how we work in the field. An outsider's not going to see that because you're building that nuance, that subtle. You're interacting with it. You actually step in and become part of the problem. Not in the sense that you're causing an issue, but because you can't solve the problem from a distance, you have to step into it. From the outsider, where you're seeing all these little sensing, these little small changes in inflection, you're seeing the texture of the issues. An outsider might have to normalize this. They may linearize it. Um, they normalize it in the sense they want to make it in to fit their uh, experience with they've never had yours. Or they linearize the curve. You're seeing small accelerations and decelerations, which you detect from interacting. 
they don't notice that. They're going to linearize it and say, well, it's kind of a straight line. You, you could see what was going on. You must have known. That's our environment we have in the field, interacting with it in a stochastic and that <clears throat> we can predict over minutes or half hour. But we know that that will change as soon as something else adds to the mix. So stochastic became our go-to word. If I wanted to uh, describe my environment to somebody, an outsider, somebody who worked in the office, a physician, I would tell them a stochastic environment. They didn't want to say anything because most of them didn't know what I meant, but they didn't want people to see that. <laughs> That's outstanding. So I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll get some information. We'll uh, put a link to your website on there. I know you got some conferences coming up, and we'll try and get you on again before then and let people know about some of the things that uh, you're working on and some of the conferences that you're putting on. But, Dave, appreciate your time. No, I appreciate this. I'm glad what you're doing for the guys out there. We need that. And uh, we will talk soon. Have a good one, okay. buddy. Thanks. All right. That is the end of part two. We will have a quick podcast coming out in the next 24 to 48 hours that recaps what we discussed in parts one and two of the series and also dives into a tangential problem originating from forcing evidence-based medicine into product evals without considering the operational environment that you may want to consider, which is actually the soft Kazovac program. Make sure you go to www.elementrescue.com and check it out. Specifically, go to the podcast page. Click on parts one and two of this series to see additional information and downloads. Also, under the main blog on that website on elementrescue.com, we have a similar piece on the first care provider program that Tactical Emergency Casualty Care has been putting out. And in that, we also compare it to the Hartford Consensus, which is using a lot of military data and trying to make it relevant for civilian bystander response, which goes into the skewing of data once again. Thanks a lot for listening.